Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode is with James Meek, and we're talking about the history, the purpose, and the misperception of the WHO. And we're also going to talk about the history, the purpose, and the misperception of the NHS. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. We talked to James a couple of days ago. We also recorded a conversation with him a couple of years ago about the long and fascinating article he wrote in the London Review of Books on the NHS. And we wanted in this conversation to try and link the two, the WHO, what's going on in the current crisis, but also what that has revealed about the role of the NHS in British health and British politics. So we're going to get to that at the end. But we started with the World Health Organization. You've just written this brilliant piece in the LRB about its history and also about the different ways in which people probably misunderstand what it can do and what it should do. It's hard to define its purpose. That's part of the challenge. But just give us a sense when you were researching this and writing about this, how should the World Health Organization be understood? What If, if someone had to sum up what its job was, what is it? <laughs> start with a, um, an easy question. Yes, I think they, they have difficulty themselves sometimes defining their job. They are based in Geneva. And one of the things that people say about Geneva, because they have different offices around the world, is that that Geneva is is where you go if you want to hear reams and reams of, of development speak. But I think it starts with their historical function, which goes back even to before they were founded in, in 1948 with, with predecessor organizations, which is to provide this sort of warning system and clearinghouse and information center for worldwide epidemics, for diseases which, as everyone knows, do not know borders. So you have a world which is governed nationally, but diseases which, which move globally. And since the 19th century, it's been understood that there needs to be some kind of central system for um, informing people, for acting as a clearinghouse, but also more broadly to standardize the terms, to warehouse data about these outbreaks. But when the WHO was founded, it was very clear that the idea of, of a global health system couldn't just be about infectious diseases, which in itself is, is a very sort of political and contentious area, as, as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss, uh, that when you talk about a, a global health system, one world, there needs to be a, an overall look at the health of everyone. And that means more than just infectious diseases. It means 
how well you are in a day-to-day basis, how chronic disease is managed, what the very idea of, of, of wellness means. And out of this came these divergent ideas of what it meant to tackle global disease. Once you went beyond the idea of, of illness spreading from, from one country to another and focused more on, on what actual communities were going through, you got into the question of, well, is the idea of global health about here's a particular health problem, here is a way to fix it, we've got these clever scientists, we've got this uh, ingenious system, we've been thinking about this, we've been working on it, we will come in from a, a wealthy developed country to you, a poor undeveloped country, with our amazing technological solution, we will vaccinate you, we will spray your, your insects, we will solve everything, and then we will go away and that will be that fixed. So that's one way of looking at it, what I would call the, the sort of the tech fix approach. But the other way of looking at it is much more communal, much more basic, much less technology based and much more politically contentious in, in the kind of global capitalist environment, whereby you say, well, look, if you're talking about how well a person is, it cannot be simply about do they have malaria or don't they? Or do they have leprosy or don't they? It's got to be about is the food on the table when they come home in the evening? How safe are they at work? If there are instructions on a packet of baby milk, can they read well enough? Are they educated well enough to understand what the, what the label actually means? It's a whole complex of, of problems. If there's somebody who has diabetes in a community, is there somebody they can go to to ask, well, how am I going to manage this condition on a daily basis? It's all that whole range of problems that can only be tackled on a, uh, on a community basis. That, that, that is the, the opposing way of looking at, at global health. So although it's always been absolutely clear that the WHO is the first line of defense against the global pandemic, the question of what it does beyond that has always seesawed between these two often quite overlapping ways of of looking at managing global health. And as you say in your piece, inevitably with these things, there are issues of who pays. And there is an inevitable tendency that that tech approach that we can solve your problems because we have the equipment or the scientists or the ideas is often favoured by the people who have the money to fund it as well. So you give the example of Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are serious funders of the WHO. And they are also very much in the business of solving disease. And at the same time, governments and also maybe populations in some of the richer countries in the world, the United States in particular, are inherently politically suspicious of the other approach because of its connotations for them of, if not world government, then at least a kind of a global suspension of national sovereignty. I mean, and these two things, they go all the way back as well, don't they? I mean, there's that tension is there too. Yes, absolutely. The United States in particular has always been wary of any sort of um, global health initiative, which might seem to constrain it in any way. And and that's reflected in so many other areas of, of society and going beyond health. We can see um, in in Britain's recent relationship with the European Union, there's this suspicion, this institutional suspicion of anything which seems to infringe on on the idea of 
of national sovereignty. There are a complex set of motives, I think, for why agents, shall we say, from one national jurisdiction will get involved in healthcare in another national jurisdiction. Sometimes it's governments, sometimes it's philanthropic organizations. And it's very easy to be to be cynical. And, and there, are, there are grounds to be cynical that um, often there are political motives. Um, this was particularly strong during the Cold War when the Soviet Union or the Communist bloc and America and Western Europe were competing for influence in countries which, to put it bluntly, did need help. So there was the influence jockeying angle. And then there is the impetus to promote in, in, in the, the wealthier, the more developed countries, the impetus to promote your own science and your own industry. You appear to be giving money to a small, poor country in Africa, but um, the money is going in the first place to all the uh, the experts and advisors and scientists in your own country who are who are producing this technological innovation. But at the same time, having said all that, that's rather sort of cynical point of view. There is a genuine humanitarian impetus, I think. And I think it's fair to say that's particularly true of, of Bill Gates and his ilk. Although he does rather stand alone in, in being after the United States government, the largest single contributor to the, uh, the WHO budget. Uh, I mean, he did not have to, to get involved in, in global health. He could have, like, like his, his fellow tech billionaire, Jeff Bezos, he could have busied himself spending, trying to send rockets to Mars. Um, but he's, he's chosen to, to do this and, and there is much that is good that has, that has come along with it. The question I think with Bill Gates is, does he perhaps favor well, we know he does, because he says so. He favors the, the technological innovation, um, as opposed to the more boring, the more bitty, the more piecemeal, the more difficult, but not necessarily the, the more ineffective public health approach of working from the ground up, working with the grassroots, working with many, many, many foot soldiers on the ground across the world to try and improve such things as, as maternal health, malnutrition, poisoned water, lack of water, and so on. These things which um, have been shown, and not just in the poorer world, but in the developed world as well, to, uh, to have extraordinary results. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the WHO points out, for example, that, that in Britain, this extraordinary drop in heart disease, which has taken place since 1980 in this country, has been more due to lifestyle changes, giving up smoking, for example, than it has been to advances in treatment. If we then connect it to the COVID crisis, so it seems to me when I was reading what you wrote, one of the ironies here is there's a kind of consensus, and this is true of the origin story of the WHO, in a way all sides agree it would be a good thing to have a clearinghouse for information, an early warning system, some way because these diseases don't respect borders, to attract the world's attention. And then there are these much deeper political controversies about what it means to treat the world, what it means to cure disease, and so on. So you see those controversies at work now, US versus China and so on, yet they're having to be filtered through an argument about whether the WHO failed in its early warning role. The thing that people can agree on has become the focal point and the target for political disputes that actually probably aren't about that. Would that be fair? That that's how people have kind of channeled it. You know, why didn't they tell us sooner they were in the pocket of the Chinese? The argument is actually about something else. 
you can't even really say that it's being led by the United States. It is simply the United States and nobody else. I do not know of any other country which has chosen to make the WHO a scapegoat for this in the way the United States has. And it's simply because the United States is so loud on the world stage that it seems as if there is this, this trend, this movement, but in fact, it is simply that one country. It's partly, I think, because Donald Trump is looking to blame others for his disastrous non-handling of the crisis in his own country, um, but also because it, it fits very conveniently in the Cold War against China that, that America has, has begun under Donald Trump. Uh, and it's interesting that of all the people around Trump who seem to be most interested in bashing China through the WHO and portraying the WHO as a mere puppet of China. It's not as are the, uh, the health secretary in, in Donald Trump's cabinet. It's, it's Peter Navarro, his, his trade advisor, who has for decades been pointing to China as the, as the great problem in the world and the great problem for, for the United States. Yet it's also true that the last few months have revealed the challenge or even the weaknesses that the WHO has to deal with its own inherent weaknesses because it is very, very dependent on national governments, not just for resourcing, but for information. And during those crucial weeks when the Chinese government was dealing with COVID within its own borders, the WHO was, relatively speaking, starved of the information it needed not because it was in the pocket of the Chinese, but because it has very, very little leverage. Even when it's playing its clearinghouse role, it has to wait to be told. It cannot go in there and find out. And this this crisis has revealed that the WHO, I mean, we knew this, we know this about many international organisations, it's when it comes to the crunch. They are pretty weak when it requires information or resources being demanded rather than simply being waited for. Absolutely. A lot of people have contrasted the behaviour of the current Director General of WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, in respect of COVID, with the, the Norwegian Director General, Gro Bundland, in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, there was the SARS outbreak, which also came from China. It was much less infectious, so it, it didn't uh, cause problems of the same scale. But there was a similar problem in the early days of getting information out of China. Uh, There was a lot of denial, there was a lot of covering up in China, and eventually Brundtland simply challenged them. She did do the thing which Tedros feels that the WHO can't really do, which is she tried to shame China. She spoke out and said, look, you've got to give us this information. She spoke publicly on the world stage um, and said that they were doing badly, and the, the Chinese authorities did not like that at all. Now, the one scenario is if you do that, as Brundtland did, then you will frighten future governments who have similar outbreaks into covering up. If you stand up and say that they're fools and knaves, then they have a sort of an impetus to keep things quiet in the hope that they'll go away quietly and they won't be humiliated in this way. But in a way, it's kind of a false opposition that the SARS story and the, the COVID story, because really the period of time that China did attempt to to keep this information quiet. And that attempt was mainly a local attempt uh, within a particular region of China rather than a national Chinese effort. 
Um, but that period of time was actually quite short. It was it was a matter of it was a matter of weeks. You're talking about probably from the middle of December when I think the Chinese can reasonably be said to know that they had a, a real problem, perhaps a little bit later, to maybe the third week of January, but say a maximum five weeks. They could help it would have helped us all if they had moved much more quickly and been much much more open much earlier. But that five weeks was much, much shorter than the period during SARS. And I think even Tedros, who does, it's fair to say, have a kind of an historical affection for the Chinese way of doing things. I think even he, if it had gone stretched out into months, would have felt that he had to, to change tack and say, look, we have a serious problem in China, they're not telling us what's going on. Behind the scenes, during the coronavirus, the early weeks of the coronavirus outbreak, we know that officials at the WHO were very, very angry and frustrated with what's going on in China. Well, despairing, I think, is, is a way of, of a better way of putting it. And it's also true that the first the WHO knew about it was through social media. It wasn't because the, the Chinese informed them that they had any problem at all. But still, those few weeks, for most of the world, were not decisive. At the point where it became clear to everyone, both through the Chinese actions and through the, the Chinese statements, how bad things were late January. That was still ample time for the whole of uh, Europe and North America and the rest of the world to put in place proper measures to prevent the epidemic spreading. And there's, there's something quite interesting here about the, um, the WHO approach, this approach of, well, all we have to work with is diplomacy, and that will involve quite a lot of rather perhaps distasteful flattery for regimes which are rather secretive, simply in order to, to give them an incentive to, to be open. But when it comes to the area of travel restrictions, similarly, the official WHO line is we are against travel restrictions to prevent a pandemic spreading. We don't think this is a good idea. And it's the same motivation of, well, if we set up this expectation that any government which announces it has an epidemic, even a small one within its borders, if we set up the expectation that immediately the barriers shoot up and that country will become plague land and nobody is allowed to go there and nobody is allowed to leave, then that's a massive disincentive for countries to become clean. Officially, the WHO will say, we were, we're against that. But it was interesting that right from the beginning, most clued up countries actually did start thinking about restrictions on travel and, and quite quickly set them up. And I think this is a case where the WHO says, we have to say this officially, that we're against travel restrictions. But if you've got any sense, you as seasoned public health professionals in your respective countries will know perfectly well that actually you should close down flights and stop this spreading. So there's an interesting kind of double language, I think, going on there. I don't remember, for example, the WHO ever really denouncing any country for imposing travel restrictions. You know, they will, they will make some feeble comment, oh, well, we don't really approve of this. But it's understood that uh, in certain circumstances, it's actually a good thing. And in a way, probably, I can imagine the WHO are rather sad that they weren't able to give Donald Trump some kind of a pack on the head for putting out travel restrictions when, when he did. But of course they couldn't, you know, because that wasn't their official policy. To 
Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's think about where the UK fits into this. As you say, I mean, I imagine there are people inside the United Kingdom government, perhaps around the edges, who might have liked to join Donald Trump in criticizing the WHO for its its failures as perceived in warning us early enough. But they haven't yet. It is true that the UK response is closer to the American response, both in its obvious failures and also in the sense that it does embrace that, even if it's not a tech approach to this, the idea that the best way out of this is not collective or communal action. It is a solution, probably a solution from the outside in the form of a vaccine or better treatment or an app or whatever. There's a kind of waiting for the magic bullet response in the UK and the US case, which does distinguish their governments from many other parts of the world and from what has turned out to be the more effective form of treatment. I mean, it looks to me like in this respect, through the prism of your, the way you've structured it in your article, The US and the UK are pretty similar. There's certainly a similarity. I I think that the reason that they look more similar than perhaps they are is because of the particular administration we have in power in Britain at the moment. Uh, We do have this populist regime. It was interesting that in Britain, the one political figure who was loudest in parroting the, the Trump line on China was Nigel Farage. Although Boris Johnson hasn't gone so far, I mean, it's a psychology. I, I think looking at it as, as something purely political is perhaps not quite the right approach. It's, it's more of, of a psychology and a culture which is highly individualistic, that the first personal response is not what can we as a national community do. But what can I, as an individual, and we as a family, as a group of friends, as, as a loyalty group of people who, who scratch my back while I scratch theirs, what can we do? Who can I pay to get myself out of this? Where is the, the device, the drug that maybe everyone knows about, or maybe it's a secret, but if I know the right people, then I will be able to get in, and I don't care about the other people who are left out, because I will have done my job to protect myself and to protect my family and to protect my friends and to protect my, my loyalty group. So I think that is the sort of the underlying culture. Where there is a, a difference between the United States and, and Britain is that there are these fantastically strong institutional constraints on individual health action here. I mean, one of the the remarkable things that has been um, exposed about the United States is that there have been times, like now, when it doesn't really look like a nation, uh, the United States. It, it really looks like, on some official levels, it, it is always supposed to have been a, a, a collection of states, a collection of nations almost. 
who are all having to, to fight this way together. I mean, I think looking at it from the outside in the United States, there's always been that option to go either way. You have the federal infrastructure and you have the, the state infrastructure. And if you are the kind of leader who prefers a, a federal approach, this would have been one of the moments when you could have, as in wartime, ramped up federal power and given the states, which I think they would have been grateful for, somewhere to go to, to, to get support. Or if, like Donald Trump, your, your instincts are individualistic, then you, you let the states fend for themselves. And, and that's the situation we have at the moment. And, and you do have this sort of situation of, of, the, uh, of the country seem to be in a constant state of falling to pieces. Whereas in Britain, although you do have these tremendously strong political, individualistic, libertarian impulses, which yearn for the, for the tech fix, at the same time, they are to some extent restrained by these institutions, the National Health Service, really, more than anything else. Um, but also by the fact that this is simply a more centralized, a more traditionally unified uh, a country where people literally live closer together. It is a naturally more communal field of action and the, and the institutions match that. One of the, the problems, perhaps the biggest problem of all, the reason that, that Britain fared so badly in this situation is that the communal only goes as far as the hospital system and, and to some extent the GP system, the NHS. It doesn't extend to social care. It's interesting that in the, in the years leading up to the current crisis, on both parties, both main political parties in Britain, tried to come up with a way to, to cope with the fact that you have this great flagship of the NHS and increasingly its strength depends on being able to sort of throw off frail elderly people out into a community which is not resourced or equipped or trained to look after them. So you had Jeremy Corbyn's idea of a, of a national care service. Um, and you had Theresa May's short-lived attempt to rejig the tax system in order to increase increase money for, for social care. You know, much as you might criticise the Conservatives or, or Labour, I think it's fair to say that there wasn't really a great embrace by the country as a whole of either solution. So where Britain finds itself, and I think this is different both from Europe and from the United States, is it's kind of poised uneasily between these two visions of healthcare, between the, the communal public health approach where you, your idea of, of caring people is not focused on, on the hospital, but it's focused on the hospital just as being part of a much wider system of continuous communal care and social care for the elderly, and that you, you just go into the hospital once in a while, but you're still cared for in some way by a wider network of, of doctors and district nurses and health visitors and, and local clinics. And yes, all sorts of technological ways to, to keep the frail elderly in touch with healthcare. So it's poised between, between that and the traditional tech fix idea, oh, something's wrong with you, go to the hospital, they'll sort you out, they'll zap you, they'll fill you full of wonder drugs and you'll go home and once you leave the hospital, that's it, you're well. And the, the curious thing is that the health establishment in Britain has been acutely aware of this 
I, I wrote about the NHS in some detail a couple of years ago, ironically, I almost at random, I chose Leicestershire, this county which is now locked down as a result of an outbreak of coronavirus there. And I found that, that here was this system which was torn between these two two ways of looking at health and trying to transform itself into a much more community-centered system, but not really having either the resources or the top-level will to actually make the difficult choices involved in, in doing that. So this is a dilemma that the, the pandemic has really very brutally exposed in this country. It's very striking. Just today, for example, in the, in the New York Times, they're talking about the, uh, the massive increase in cases in, in Houston, in Texas. And they're talking about the fears among medics there that their hospitals will be overwhelmed by this, this latest wave of cases. And they say ambulances in Houston have been waiting up to an hour to unload patients at emergency rooms, officials said. And in the context of the New York Times, in the context of the Texan officials, this is a disaster. This is a, this is a horror story. Ambulances waiting for up to an hour. But that is what happens every winter in almost every hospital, long before coronavirus came along, just in the normal winter. And even in summer sometimes, um, it's become normal now for patients to be held in ambulances for hours while they wait to get into hospital. So I did wonder when this, this started and there was an announcement that um, they were clearing the hospitals of, of the elderly. Well, how is that going to work when they already clear the hospitals of the elderly, when they're already drowning in, um, in cases? It is beginning to seem as if the process that was undergone was actually quite a, a hasty and, and even brutal one, where thousands and thousands of frail elderly people were sent back to where they had come from, often into residential care homes, without being tested see whether they were carrying the, the virus. And many, many people died as a result. I mean, you, you asked me a few weeks ago whether I'd like to, to come on and, and talk about the NHS in the life of, of me writing about it a few years ago. And I felt, well, the NHS is actually seems to be coping pretty well with, with this virus uh, remarkably, you know, almost better than it copes with a typical winter in Britain. So perhaps now is not the time. And with the perspective of, of a couple of months, it seems fairly clear that the reason the NHS coped was at the expense of frail elderly people who were thrown out into this unreformed, chaotic, ill-provided for social care system that we in this country have allowed to grow up. And um, all the measures that they've been talking about and trying to take in the past few years to implement a more community-based system of healthcare have simply failed. They have not fully been put in place. They have not been funded. Everyone understands this, and and yet it seems the political measures to find the money to actually sort this out are, for the for the present, impossible. So I want to ask you one last question, which does come out of the piece that you wrote and that we talked about on this podcast a couple of years ago, and I've thought about it quite a lot. Like you say, I tried to get you on a bit sooner, maybe a bit too soon to talk about it. And now it is really clear. And what you just said is both fascinating, but also, I think, revealing. When we talked about it before, one of the things that came up, I mean, it's a a central theme in what you were writing about, and you connected it to the issue of Brexit, because we also see this huge generational divide in how people vote. 
and in people's political attitudes to some fundamental questions, including, it turned out, membership of the European Union. The NHS, in a very different context from the WHO, was created for one world a long time ago, the post-Second World War world, which was, among other things, a world where the demography was very different. And it's had to evolve for a different world. And in the case of the UK, that means for an ageing society, an elderly society. It was originally, one of its primary functions was child health, infant mortality. It's now overwhelmingly focused on elderly care and elderly health. And we've seen in this crisis, you know, it's been a cliche of it almost that because the disease targets older people and the mortality rates are so much higher, whether you're over 70, over 80, young people are making sacrifices, including economic sacrifices. There are at least possibilities for politically that divide to be bridged. On the other hand, as you were speaking, I was thinking that the central problem here is that the NHS, its kind of totemic status in these political arguments, it's not about care. It's about the NHS. We have a Tory government that says that the NHS is powered by love and it's the beating heart of this nation. And the NHS is saving the lives of older people and young people are making sacrifices. If you do it through the NHS as your totem of these political arguments, for the reasons you've just said, it doesn't ultimately work. It does not bridge that divide. It it makes it worse. One of the things I've noticed over the years is how policies come along and a policy has a long life, it's born and, and if it's taken up, it gets implemented. And then quite often it seems that even as it's, as it's in full flow, as it were, it's already being denounced as, as a mistake. Um, and the next thing that's going to replace this is, is coming along. And, and one thing these policies seem to have in common is that they, they always proclaim that they will be both money saving and better for the people who, who benefit from them. And it seems that, that as the, the policy grows old, the improvement that it promises to bring withers away and all that is left is the intention to, to save money. And in all these arguments, this is the thing that's sort of lurking in the background because it's all very well, for example, for me to talk about the difference between the, the tech fix and the, uh, and the communal approach to to health, but either one of these, if you chose it as your prime focus, could end up being a an instrument to save money and to actually make things work. So you can say, well, um, there's nothing to worry about in Britain. We've got great healthcare. We've got a wonderful NHS. You go to hospital. We've got all these wonderful machines and drugs and brilliantly trained doctors. You know, if you use them, you'll all be all right. While the absolutely supremely necessary other side of healthcare, public health, communal care, promotion of, of healthy lifestyles is, is withering on, and mental health is withering on the vine. So your promotion of, yes, yes, we're going to choose the NHS, it's going to be great, but that can also be as positive as it might be, can end up being a, a way of not spending money on the other thing. But similarly, it could easily be the other way around. You know, I saw this as well when I, when I was in Leicester, the way that actually it could easily end up being not an improvement, but a, a way of pushing a problem out where nobody can see it. If you send everyone out into the community and look after them there, then uh, if things go wrong, they're just sort of quietly fading away in these, in these villages and in ones and twos, and, and nobody is really seeing them as they would see them when they were queuing up in a, in a hospital ward. So 
if you're not taking a, a holistic approach, if you're not saying we have to have a high-tech, effective hospital system, and we have to have a well-funded, well-planned community health system with local clinics, local testing, lots of district nurses, and a huge effort of public support for people to live healthy lifestyles. If you're not doing it across the spectrum, if you're saying we're going to do this, but not that, or we don't do this, but not that, that's a sign that saving money is your prime aim and not health. And as wise people have pointed out, it's only once you do take this holistic approach, once you have put in the initial investment, that you can then start thinking about ways to make it perhaps more, more effective. You can't save money without putting the investment in first. If you'd like to hear the original interview we recorded with James, we will make that available in our show notes. You can find it on our website and we will tweet it at tppodcast underscore. And if you go to lrb.co.uk, you can read both of James's articles. He is also a novelist and he has got a remarkable and very different new novel out. It's coming out in paperback in just a few days. It really is highly recommended. It's called To Calais in Ordinary Time. And you can get it in bookshops now because bookshops are open too. Do read it. Helen and I will be back in our usual slot this week, and we're going to be asking Helen for her take on the history of ideas. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.